0: Welcome to the Anthropology in Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm here with Dom Podia, an anthropologist from Slovenia. Um, Don, you have a tremendous uh, number of activities you're engaged in to popularize anthropology, but also in a very rigorous way. You've done uh, applied work. You're in academia, numerous books, conference, and I'll get into all that in just a second. But I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks for all the work you're doing. Um, so really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you, Matt, so much for inviting me to the post-podcast, so I'm really happy to be here with you, and I hope we will share some anthropological knowledge around the world.
0: Thanks. And so, a little background. So, you're a research fellow at the Research Center of Slovenian Academy of Sciences and Arts. Associate Professor at the University of Ljubljana Faculty of Arts, Senior Research Advisor at the Institute for Innovation and Development at the University of Ljubljana, multiple applied projects such as Drive Green, Invisible Life of Waste. Um, in, in the past 10 or so years, you've been really involved in the, the movement to popularize anthropology through the as a convener of the uh, European Association of Social Anthropologists and uh, the Applied Anthropology Network. And um maybe more recently, the Why the World Needs Anthropologists uh conference and now book, which we'll talk about today. And uh the book, you know, as I just said, as we were sort of talking before this, you know, I'm about 80% of the way through. I think it's a great read for anybody who's interested in anthropology, both rigor, but very approachable, great for anthropologists, great for non-anthropologists. So um again, thanks for coming on. Would you maybe To start, would you maybe tell us how you got into anthropology and what was your journey in?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting story, I guess, because when I was younger, I didn't imagine never to become an anthropologist. It was really by some strange coincidence. I actually wanted to become an actor as my father or a journalist as my mother. Uh, she was a radio journalist and then, uh, because I was not accepted to the Academy of Acting in uh, Ljubljana in 1993, I think, then I applied as a plan B to uh, anthropology and ethnology here in Slovenia, in Ljubljana. And then I studied it for a couple of years and found it really boring And then uh, I almost left the study and started being a journalist at that time. And also narrator, uh, or how do you call it, an anchor on the radio uh, for uh, Radio Slovenia for younger audience. And so and this was perhaps the most interesting part of my life because i was able to invite any band that i wanted to meet from slovenia even from abroad to come to this radio show and talk to interesting famous people so i worked there for four years from 1999 to 2003 and then i realized now i really have to finish my studies and then i started studying again doing anthropology more seriously again And then I realized, wow, this is actually very interesting because I read so many books and got really into it. And in this, uh, from the uh, late 1990s to early 2000s, the anthropology in Slovenia had changed significantly and became much more open to um, the new world trends. And also those themes that uh, were interesting, that I was interested in, for example, um, urban anthropology, applied anthropology became more significant also in Slovenia. And then I somehow fell in love, uh, actually fell in love in anthropology, started taking it more seriously, got an opportunity in 2005 to work in a European project uh, on uh, biodiversity monitoring in Europe. And it was, again, similar to Monty Python's Flying Circus. I don't know if you in the US watched the show, but you, I'm sure you, you remember it. So, And you know that famous quote, and now for something completely different. And it was, again, another shift in my career from being a radio journalist to becoming an anthropologist and then being involved in a European project on biodiversity monitoring. And what was my role as an anthropologist uh, in the project? So I was observing the observers. I was watching the bird watchers. So this was uh, also the basics of my PhD thesis. And uh, I did research about their habits, how... Uh, what do they do in the field and they were watching the birds with binoculars and I was observing them and wrote uh, my thesis about it and later published it also as a book and so I finished my PhD I think it was in 2010 and then I became involved much more and interested much more in how to use anthropology in practice how to collaborate with industry how to make a uh, products, services, which are more people friendly, how to use anthropological uh, tools, perspectives to make uh, a better better products and also to make a better world. So this is uh, when this idea also started why the world needs anthropologists. And I think it was around uh, 2012, when we started uh, thinking about this event which is here in the background, a roll-up. So I put it here because then I don't have to clean uh, the uh, room, you know. So it's a kind of Potemkin village. Um, And um, then we uh, organized the first event, Why the World Needs Anthropologists, in 2013 in Amsterdam. And this is how I became, like... um, more engaged in applied practicing anthropology. And also I'm trying to connect not only applied anthropologists, but I also try to connect the industry, the academia, bring the two worlds together, because I think we can make really a significant impact on the world if we start collaborating uh, instead of being on two different islands uh and not connected to each other
0: for sure so now in your journey to the applied work was it the thesis like or was it the biodiversity work that really kicked that off or was it once you graduated and you saw what was happening um around you at that time that really put you down that path
1: Hmm. Uh, i think i just tried to go with the flow i'm not i don't have A straight career, as you've probably noticed, and I'm not even obsessed anymore to having any kind of goal to go towards. I just, when I notice there is something important, interesting going on, then I go in this direction. And yes, biodiversity monitoring was was one of the things, and also sustainability. Uh, At the beginning of my PhD study, I was completely confused. What does it have to do with anthropology? I mean, I I didn't know, I mean, okay, biodiversity, monitoring, sustainability, anthropology. But then you realize it's all about habits. It's about our survival on the planet. It's about um, uh, connecting not only to other people, but to other species, thinking in a more systemic way. And yes, it it left a huge uh, impression on me, a huge impact on my life and career. And then I was... I also started uh, being involved more and more in projects such as um, Drive Green. We started uh, that one in 2014, and it was it dealt about with driving habits. We wanted to uh, research driving habits in different cities, uh, Ljubljana, Belgrade, Budapest, and Newcastle in the UK, and try to make a cross-cultural comparison how people drive. Uh, and how can we uh, change uh, their driving habits in different places because it is culture specific so what you drive defines who you are and in some countries what we realized during this study is that this pyramid of social stratification and in all countries actually depends on you are what you drive in Serbia for example when we uh, did a part of our research you are on the top of this pyramid if you have big black German car. it has to be big, it has to be black it has to be german I mean otherwise you 're not on the top and below you have other foreign cars, then you have level uh, in somewhere in the middle of the pyramid level of the cars uh, car drivers who drive our cars, such as Yugo. I don't know if you know Zastava Mm Yugo. It was... eh, They they also sold it in the US in 1980s. So uh, there are some great books about it. And the car also appears in uh, some films such as Die Hard 3, I think. Uh, So it was supposed to be a very economic uh, little car and it cost at that time around $5,000 or something like that so it was really cheap and it was made in Yugoslavia by Zastava it was ours and so if you're if you uh, are a driver of this kind of car you're somewhere in the middle and then there is a layer of uh, drivers uh, who uh, uh, are passengers on buses uh, trams and so on and at the bottom of the bottom are uh, pedestrians and cyclists because it means if you're a cyclist, you don't have even the money to buy a ticket for the bus. However, this is, of course, changing also in Belgrade and in other cities. So the shift is uh, becoming more and more apparent. And uh, in some cities like in Amsterdam, for example, or Copenhagen, you're not on the top pyramid. If you're a driver of this big black German car, it's another way around. You're on the bottom of the pyramid. Uh, and uh, you're on the top if you're a cyclist. And now there was the question how to make this shift from uh, how to turn the pyramid around. And at that time, we uh, made an app. Uh, the app was is called uh, 123 because it represents three steps. One for yourself. So if you cycle, if you walk, then you're more healthy. The second one is for the city, and the third one is for the planet. But the main point, and this is something that comes from the people uh, in that development project, is the idea of uh, quantified us. I'm sure you've heard about the quantified yeah. self movement, so sure. measuring yeah. your steps, how much you move, and so on. But what does it matter? I mean, does it matter that you made 10,000 steps today, really? What kind of impact does it make uh, to the society, to the planet? And then we wanted to make this shift because we talked to people. Yes, okay, we like to measure our achievements by smart watches and so on. But what we really want to achieve is for people to collaborate, not just to compete against yourself, against uh, each other, but to collaborate. And then we made uh, part of this solution is um, the we call it indirect micro donations so it means the more uh, you uh, walk the better it is for the community because you compete on average against somebody in the city a representative of the city for example the mayor of ljubljana and if you um win if the city win wins against the mayor of ljubljana he has to pay a certain om- amount let's say uh The competition can be in cycling for two weeks. And then uh, if the mayor cycles more than Ljubljana on average, he's free at the end of two weeks. But if he loses against Ljubljana, then he has to pay a certain amount of money from his own budget not from the uh, public budget or from city budget, from his own pocket for improvement of cycling infrastructure. And this is something that made people really motivated in Ljubljana, in Belgrade, in Budapest, in Newcastle, also in Durham, where we did a part of our study, because somebody else is paying for your achievements. And it also makes people united, you know, in this sense that you're, you're not just competing uh, against somebody you're we call it competition so you cooperate and compete at the same time and this is something this is an idea that came actually from the people so we started doing it all wrong at the beginning honestly so we wanted to make another app that motivate that shows you your co2 emissions but who cares Nobody cares. If you're in a hurry, if you have to leave your uh, child in kindergarten in the morning and then hurry to your work, you just jump in your car and drive. But then you ruin everything. Because what you should do, sell your car or leave it at home at least. And this is the significant change that you can make. And this makes you come closer to this ideal that we call in Europe... Copenhagenization of traffic. Even though I think Copenhagenization to make cities more like Copenhagen is not the best word. Why? Because I think we should belgradize cities, we should ljubljanize cities, we should uh, and we should find solutions for New York, we should find solutions for Washington, for Chicago. So Each city is different because of the social, cultural, economic, historical background of the infrastructure, everything else that is going on in the city. And you have to take into account people. So make solutions for the people and with the people.
0: And so, you know, I'm curious to know on that point. Uh, in one of the videos I watched on YouTube, in one of your presentations, you had talked rec- relatively recently about moving from sort of you know, people centered, human centered, or user centered, whatever term somebody uses, right, to describe that process to more of a sort of planet-centered approach, which is more or less what you're talking about right here without calling it that. And so how are you potentially incorporating that into, say, the teaching that you're doing and, and you know, the, the, the work that you're doing in academia to train sort of the next generation of practitioners to engage in that
1: work? Well, we started with a people-centered approach. So we developed this approach in the project called, well, people It was about the people-centered development uh, approaches in um, real life and learning environments, meaning that uh, we can use it either in the industry or academia and bring students to uh, the industry to work there on actual problems. And the approach has uh, four basic steps. The first one is identification of people. The second one, analysis of people and their habits, needs, um, practices, uh, routines. The third step is uh, interpretation of the findings with the people. And the fourth step, testing of the solution with the same people that you identified in the step one. And it seems to be very intuitive for anthropologists, for example. So you go through these four steps and you go to the people, talk to them, develop the solution with them and then present it to the people and then you go back, you iterate the process until the thing works. But how does it actually work in the industry? They usually leave the two steps out. The first one, identification and the second one, uh, analysis. They start instead the development process with uh, interpretation and they leave the people out of the story. So they meet like two of us or they, meet, they invite other people to a meeting room to the so-called brainstorming. Nowadays, they do it on Zoom. There are six or seven people like uh, CEO, um, director of marketing, uh, head yeah. of design, the experts. The experts, exactly. This is the uh, expert-centered design. The experts come and start thinking. Hmm, hmm, hmm. What shall we design for the people? They don't call them people, actually. They call them what shall we design for the users, customers, clients, patients, if it's a, a pharmaceutical industry and so on. And then somebody says, aha, and he comes up or she with an idea. And then they start working on the idea and then they test it uh, with in focus groups or they do a survey. How do you like this thing? And then they can uh, say, I don't know, I like it seven out of 10. Okay, that's quite good. Let's improve it a little bit. And this is the so-called usability testing, more or less. But they don't go to the people they don't talk to the actual people sometimes uh, they make even the artificial people the so-called personas which represent the actual people like i don't know matt uh, uh 37 years old i don't know how old you actually are but let's say 37 for example has a, a one child wife a dog so now you're a persona you're not an actual person i'm making all this up And um, then you start designing a solution for that person. And then you can make several personas. And then you start making a solution for the person. And you have always that person in mind when developing a solution. But why don't you go out of the room to actual people? I mean, bring them to the room, you know, if you want to talk to them. It's very simple. It's so intuitive. But the problem is in Slovenia, I don't know how it is currently in the US, but... 99% of companies don't do these two first steps. They don't go go to people. They don't talk to them. They don't uh, sit with them. They don't drink coffee with them or beer with them. They don't know anything about them. And they claim, but we know our users. We know our customers. And I think the first step should be to get rid of the words such as users, customers, clients. We're talking about people. Nobody wants to be addressed as a user. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, today I will be a better user. Or who? nobody wants to have on his tombstone when he dies or she is. Uh, he was an excellent user. God bless him. Come on, this is wrong. The word is wrong. And um, therefore, we should first make this step to start calling people people to start talking to them, to start employing anthropologists who are excellent translators from uh, the world of people to the world of design and development. And what we should learn as anthropologists is to be able to make development recommendations. And this is the tricky part for us. So to make 10 bullet points for developers of the solution, how to make it and not just some, uh, I don't know, essay on 10 pages. No, I mean, this is not enough. You have to summarize it, uh, visualize it, describe it. And then uh, the developers, the engineers, for example, the designers will be happy because they will know that you take them seriously. You're not just giving them an essay about habits in uh, New York, for example, and uh, now you have to develop something for the people. Come on, they need very clear recommendations. And this is something we should learn urgently. And also to speak the language of the designers, the engineers. uh, I mean, it's like coming to, like uh, Bronislaw Malinowski, you know, who uh, described... How he came to the Tarobrient Islands and how he was confused because he didn't speak the language, he didn't understand the habits, and so on. Um, and when you learn this, you can start communicating with engineers. I'm not saying that engineers are, com- are from completely different planet, but they do—they have a different mindset. They, and we should learn about it. And if yeah. you want
0: and their to- behaviors, rituals, you know, right? They—they oh, they have their own roles. All of it.
1: Of course, and we are not like natural born enemies. On the contrary, uh, according to my experience, especially with engineers, we collaborate really well and sometimes I compare it with the horos- with horoscope. So I don't know if you know, but um, I, I don't believe actually in horoscopes, but I read somewhere that um, cancer and Scorpio, no. Taurus and Scorpio, sorry, I'm cancer, Taurus and Scorpio are is the best possible combination out of 144 combinations. So if you uh, 12 and 12 uh, put together, then you get 144 uh, possible combinations. So Scorpio and Taurus. And sometimes I jokingly say that we are actually engineers and anthropologists uh, like scorpio and taurus in horoscope why because we are completely different but we collaborate really well together because we leave ourselves uh the open field to research and to do things we don't interfere but if we manage to talk to each other then it works really well by the way i'm uh scorpio in ascendant and my wife is uh Taurus in ascendant. So we collaborate quite well uh, in this sense, horoscopically, and um, we are both anthropologists. This is another thing. (laughs) But again, please, uh, I don't, I'm not a big believer in horoscopes. I have to repeat that, but I believe anthropologists and engineers can work really well together.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, I work with engineers every day and I would back that up and I know many others listening would, but not just engineers, designers, right? There's plenty of roles that we work really well with. And the fact is we can work really well with any role, given our toolkit, the way we approach the world, just need to be open to that. And for more of us who are moving into business need to make sure that to your point, we are taking the extra step to provide recommendations to kind of, you know, to create the change that we want to see. And I think that's it seems like, you know, with Why the World Needs Anthropologists First Say the Conference, that is a big part of what you're trying to do, right? You are trying to convey through the stories that are very approachable stories. You have, the, you know, another video on YouTube. It's titled, you know, Three Words That Are Not uh, not Allowed at at the Conference, right? And, you know, of course, that's somewhat of a joke, I'm sure. But the point is, is that you, you're trying to make it approachable and help the world at large see how uh, anthropology contributes and how we can work with other disciplines, not just for the benefit of anthropologists, but really for the benefit of anybody who's interested. And so I'm wondering, you know, was that, was that the mission from the very beginning or did that, you know, take a little, you know, iteration itself to sort of bring into fruition? And maybe also how does that relate to, you know, the European Society of of Anthropologists? You know, what's the connection between the two?
1: So first of all, uh, about those three uh, words banned on the stage or forbidden on the Why the World Needs Anthropology stage, those words are uh, ambiguities, hermeneutics, and post-structuralism. And okay, it's a joke, of course, but I actually, I mean, we actually say, the organizers to the speakers, before they go on the stage and when they're preparing for their speech, Please don't use these words or such words on the stage, because what we want to achieve is to get as many non-anthropologists to the room as possible. So to get uh, to the hall where the event is going on, engineers, designers, biologists, uh, people from NGOs, uh, managers, whoever. So the more the merrier is our uh, slogan of the event. And um, we want to attract the the diversity of people uh, and if this if they if we start using our jargon, the words that are uh, from our uh endogamous group, if I call it like that, uh, then we will just confuse people and uh, they will not be able to follow uh, what's going on on the stage clearly, so therefore we just want. Anthropologists to go on the stage and say in a plain uh, language and open way what is their contribution to the world, their personal contribution and contribution of anthropology in general. And um, I think this was a part of the success of the event. This is uh, how it started, and we we had this rule from the beginning uh, that this. Uh, speakers should present it's it's similar in a way to ted talk so you can watch any ted talk and you should understand it if 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 it's a philosopher speaking if it's uh, a physicist speaking if it's a rocket scientist speaking the point is you should understand it and then you spread the word around and so this is one thing and another thing is that we do at every event, is to invite somebody who is a non-anthropologist to be a keynote speaker. So we started this in 2015, uh, this approach, to invite somebody who is uh, a non-anthropologist. That year, the event was held in Ljubljana, and the title was Burning Issues of Our Hot Planet. It was a little bit more oriented towards sustainability, climate crisis, And similar topics, but not completely. Anyway, the the speakers that year were uh, Genevieve Bell, who spoke about robots and how they might uh, take over the world. Then um, uh, Thomas Hilland Ericsson, who spoke about the overheating of the planet. And uh, Joanna Breidenbach, who is the founder of um, one um, NGO called Better Place. The, which is the largest crowdfunding platform for social projects in Europe, or at least in Germany. And they, she managed to collect millions of euros for social problems. And there all, three of them are, as you know, anthropologists. But at the beginning, we invited Lucka Kaifes-Bogataj, who is a Slovenian, and she's a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, And she spoke about why the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change urgently needs anthropologists. She presented, for example, the refugee crisis which happened that year uh, in Europe, uh, not only from the perspective of the war going on in Syria, but also from the perspective of the changing climate and how how millions of people will have to move from certain parts of the planet in the future, Africa, Central Asia, and so on, and migrate somewhere else to survive. So these are normal processes followed by anthropologists for a very long time. So we understand them very, very well. And she told us why she, as a climatologist, would include anthropologists in uh, this kind of intergovernmental institutions. And then uh, in the next year, for example, uh, we had in 2016, uh, the event was held in Tartu, in Estonia, and Sten Tamkivi was uh, the keynote speaker. He's one of the first managers of Skype, another technology that is used that we used to connect people. And he said, and for me, this is the most important thing. He said, the world, not only the world, Skype needs anthropologists to make the technological solution more people-friendly, more um, attractive in the longer run. And then Microsoft took them over and Zoom take over the world, meanwhile. But still, it's very important that he said it, and this is—it makes the whole difference if you invite somebody who says uh, that uh, anthropology can be valuable for the world, for the industry, for the business, and so on. But
0: yeah, I love that approach. Go, go on.
1: Yeah, but you asked me before—I uh, don't know how I came to this point—but you asked me about the shift from the people to the planet-centered approach, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a really important next step. So we shouldn't be so obsessed anymore with, or egocentric even, we shouldn't be so egocentric, focusing only on the people with making solutions, technological solutions, non-technological solutions. If we want to survive as a species, as humans, we have to make planet-centered solutions. So with everything you make, with every um, solution that you design, you should take into account animals, plants, uh, non-living nature, so everything that is around us. And it's a very difficult, tricky next step. Talking to people is quite easy. Talking to our cat is a little bit more tricky. I, I still don't have the answer, how shall we do it? But maybe you know that scheme, you know, uh, from ego to eco. Eco means that is more ecological, that uh, human is not in the center of attention. But uh, when you go to ego, human is usually on the top of this uh, pyramid and we have to make a shift. So with the people-centered approach, we, make, we made the first step. From this expert mindset to more people-centered mindset. And the next one should be the planet-centered mindset. It should be our ultimate goal.
0: Yeah. And I certainly agree with that. And I appreciate that it's, it's challenging. And, um, but again, anthropologists are sort of well-suited to play a role in that. Um, we don't have to be the only ones by any means we obviously need to collaborate. And that's, you know, collaboration is one of the themes that come out in the book, why the world needs anthropologists. There's a fair amount of discussion in there, you know, in, in various, uh, chapters about collaborating. And so, you know, I, it, you, when you speak of your own, um, you know, your own applied work, you also speak about, you know, the interdisciplinary work that you're doing. And so uh, what have you learned from, you know, getting these different participants to come to the conference, you know, biologists, whoever may be, or the speakers that you're talking about, has anything particularly interesting happened there, you know, or, or come out of the conference as a result of the various people that you're bringing together?
1: Yeah, there were like, for me personally, the most important result is that uh, companies have actually started to employ anthropologists, not only in Slovenia, but broader in Europe. The change uh, is going on in this moment. Uh, and they actually, uh, the large, one of the largest electro distributors in Slovenia uh, had a post for anthropologists, I think, last year or two years ago. So we're looking for anthropologists, psychologists, sociologists, for making sustainable solutions and people-friendly solutions of the future. And for me, it's the most important thing, uh, the most important outcome of uh, Why the World Needs Anthropology conference and even the whole movement around it. And um, another important thing is that I think the study programs have also started to change to become more oriented towards uh, applied uh, anthropology. Because I'm not saying that there is anything wrong, wrong with theoretical uh, anthropology. On the contrary, I think uh, there is nothing as practical as good theory, as somebody said. So we can use good theory everywhere, and but we should somehow balance it. So we should uh, teach both how to use theory and uh, we should get g- good cases and plus um, engage students really early in this study process uh, to, do, to work on actual projects. And uh, in this project titled People, it was an international project, a uh, three-year uh, project uh, financed by the Erasmus Plus scheme. So it's a scheme uh, which is used to finance uh, student projects. And it was quite a big project, actually. And in this project, we had um, there were four countries collaborating: uh, the Netherlands, Slovenia, uh, the UK, and Czech Republic. And in each country, we had an academic partner, a university, and an industry partner. And in this way, we could identify actual problems of the industry. For example, how to make better um, chargers for electric vehicles. I'm just making it up now, but it was actually one of the cases in the UK. And then students came and did research with people, with the locals, uh, make some proposals for the developers, and then the developers from the industry tried to adapt uh, the solution and make it more people-friendly. And uh, in this way, I mean, first of all, students realized what are the actual problems, challenges of the industry. And second, uh, the industry realized that they can actually use anthropological knowledge. And the most important uh, thing is not only for me, not only for uh, the industry to start using anthropologists, to start employing anthropologists, if they start using ethnography as our main method then this is the victory you know when they start incom- incorporating ethnography in their everyday life in their everyday work and this happened in another project uh, called MobiStyle. style it's a uh, uh, horizon 2020 project uh, where we started really like there were two worlds one was the world of engineers one was the world of anthropologists and we were really in minority there so and I really remember the first project meeting when I came to the stage and said uh, that we will do our research with 35 people and the engineers the, the listeners said you mean what 35 million I guess they thought we will do a huge European survey and said no 35 35 000. No, 35. They were like, but I mean, it's completely statistically insignificant, this kind of sample. And wh- you know, then I tried to explain that there are two ways of seeing the world. One is the world of big data. One is the world of thick data. And that anthropology gives you another kind of insight. And that, that with uh, sensors and other devices, Uh, that are built in homes, they can measure temperatures, how do people interact with devices. But if you talk to people, then you get completely different type of data, kind of data. And then they were still not convinced. And then, okay, then I tried something else, another metaphor and said, you know, anthropology is like uh, quantum physics of social sciences because we are really interested in this Particles in each individual particle, and how does this particle uh, influence its environment, its surroundings, the matter, how it changes the matter, and how the, how is the matter structured? And then ah oh, okay, why didn't you say it like that? And then we started to talk, and when we it was really the icebreaker this moment, and then we started to co- collaborate really well, and for me the victory, the victorious moment was when a Dutch engineer uh, called us and said, because she also, she was, uh, she had to do some interviews and focus groups and she was really enthusiastic. Like, hey, I talked to people, you know? And for her, it was such a, another world was revealed to her. Of course, she talks to people, but it was not a part of her job to talk to people before making a solution. And she, since then, you know, uh, we collaborated even better. And for me, this is the point, not interdisciplinarity, that we work together, transdisciplinarity, that we start using engineering methods or um, methods of economists or... Of, um, I don't know, natural scientists and that engineers start using anthropology, ethnography, start reading anthropological uh, books. And I think this is the future. This is the future of work environments. This, is, this should be the future of study that you're not uh, more and more expert in a certain um, field of science. On the contrary, we need hybrid species. We need amphibians who can live in two worlds together, connect the worlds, you know? And this is what I'm missing at university, especially in Europe, in Slovenia, you know? We are very much um, divided into categories. Uh, At the Faculty of Arts, you can study sociology, anthropology, psychology, um, English language, and you shouldn't mix those things because the results are bad if you mix things no of course they're good i mean you should mix even stranger things you should mix philosophy and medical science you should mix engineering and anthropology you should mix um, psychology and mathematics i don't know you should mix all crazy things and this this is the source of innovativeness this is the source of the great potential and for example, Slovenia is a small country, so it's a country with two million inhabitants. I guess it's like Manhattan or smaller, I don't know, in size. I mean, it's in, in the population. And um, But the thing is, we cannot compete with the countries like uh, the US, India, China in, I don't know, nanotechnologies, you know, because they're bigger and faster but how can we be uh better that we and ino- more innovative if we bring unusual things together and here i have to um mentioned the value of humanities and social science, sciences. At the moment, there is a big discussion in Slovenia whether there should be more natural scientists, more uh, engineers because of the COVID-19 pandemic, because of the health crisis, more medical stuff. But I, what, I, what is my opinion? Why don't we use the huge potential of humanities and social sciences in Slovenia? This is how we are internationally recognized. There is a philosopher, Slavoj Žižek, from Slovenia, who is a trademark in humanities and social sciences. When I, say, when I go abroad, everybody says, oh, you're from the Faculty of Arts. Do you know Slavoj Žižek? Uh, uh, no, because if he appears uh, at workplace, it's a miracle, you know. I mean, when he comes, he has uh, lectures uh, that you have to book a seat in advance if you want to hear it. But anyway, what I wanted to say, let's use the potential of social sciences. Let's use the potential of anthropology and put them in unusual places, like in industry, in high-tech uh, industry. And they could, I think there should be an anthropologist in every high-tech company, serious high-tech company. And Microsoft, as far as I know, is the second second largest employer of anthropologists in the U.S. The first one is the U.S. government. Okay.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. And so, you know, what do you, um, maybe what's next for you, you know, how are you going to try and realize that goal, whether it's in Slovenia or broader?
1: You mean to um, spread the idea of anthropology?
0: Yeah, well, you're doing that already through the conference and the book, but how, you know, how, what might you do to help contribute to, you know, more, um, more transdisciplinary Okay, Training, I, will if show you will.
1: You, I will show you something. I will disappear behind this curtain here because uh, I think I have it here. So this is a result uh, of the project uh, The Invisible Life of Waste. And why I wanted to show it to you because it's completely analog. So I think the... Okay, technologies are of course the future of humanity, and the, the sooner or sooner or later uh, we will become some kind of cyborgs or we already are cyborgs with uh, smartphones and other devices becoming indispensable part of our life but what I'm interested in is the analog world so how how to get engaged in development not only of uh, smartphone apps and other kind of solutions, which are people and planet friendly, but of this kind of solution. So this is, the title is in Slovenian, it's the dirty game, Umazana igra in Slovenian, and we designed it in the project. And the purpose of the game is, so you play with rats. So these are the main characters are the rats. And the purpose of the game is to make a city as dirty as possible. So to make a huge pile of uh, garbage in the city by different actions. So, for example, you can chew tires of sanitation vehicles or you can open as rats. So each player is a rat and they collaborate as a pack of rats. So they're a kind of group of gangsters. But um, of course, this is not only an uneducational game we wanted to make it transgressive when you finish playing you realize oh my god what have i done when you see the pile of trash and then when you go out you start seeing things when you you start seeing trash and this is also it's made of trash it's a coffee called illy and we packed it uh uh, we pack the games uh, the card game here because we wanted to use something that you would otherwise throw away and again this is an idea that came from the people so we talked with them it came from ethnographic research the core of the idea they were they're really bored with uh, seriousness of sustainability so sustainability should be actually fun maybe we should get rid of the word sustainability because it's so boring you know and so over exploited as the word culture in anthropology so it's t- totally exploited meaningless word, word almost meaningless and um we wanted to make something new something that is fun and that gets you to the same result so <laughs> cleaning cities and here this is really a transdisciplinary work. So um, it was. There were anthropologists in the team, electrical engineers, designers, and so on. And we made something together. And why? Why did I show it? Because, as I said, I think this is the future. When we um, when we forget about our role, and when we start. Uh, as, my, as a friend of mine, Anna Kirach, who uh, was a designer for Boeing and Microsoft, says often we should take off our expert hats. And the same goes for anthropologists. We should forget about... we should We shouldn't be so obsessed with us. And we should start learning other approaches, start respecting other approaches. And my main goal is to somehow to get integrated, for anthropology, to get integrated in other study programs, in medicine, engineering, uh, biology, whatever. So to add a part, a little bit of anthropology in every study program and at the same time accept a little bit of uh, their knowledge to uh, our study program. And I think this is, then we get this jigsaw, you know, When you put all puzzles together, then you have a bigger picture of the world. We don't have all answers, anthropology. Sometimes I think we're so, I don't know, not posh, but I don't know what's the right word. Just all-knowing creatures. We think we know everything about everything. And it's not true. I mean, we should be humble and accept that we are only humans and that we should listen to other people to... not only to experts but to common people who know more about the world many times than we do and one thing that we should do is stop um, not only on the stage of why the world needs anthropologists but also in the way how we write how we present things stop using the stop complicating things more than they actually are what we need in anthropology are bestsellers so we haven't had any serious bestsellers since coming of age in Samoa. Okay, there was David Graber in Europe who has uh, recently passed away, but otherwise, I mean, we need books that will uh, that will be like uh, the books written by Stephen Hawking, for example, who made a huge advertisement for physics, for uh, astronomy. We need uh, books that will open again this extremely interesting world of anthropology we are dealing with the most interesting topics in the world sex religion um uh, human habits uh, throughout the world and if we present it if we manage to present this in the way that is attractive and meaningful for the people then an anthropology will really uh, be revived and will get more attention also more Financing through this, you know, on the long term, people will be interested to support more grants of anthropologists because they write so interesting books which are read by millions, not by dozens.
0: Yeah. yeah, great point. And, you know, again, I think um, you, you know, with the edited work, why the world needs anthropology edited work and all the authors, I mean, I think you did an excellent job of moving us towards that goal. So thanks for that again. And I guess uh, to wrap up where, so thanks, you know, for that advice. I, I encourage everybody who is listening, you know, to try and play a role in, in bringing anthropology to more people through many forms, books, but also new media, you know, such as a podcast like this, such as video, so on and so forth, right? Anything we can do to sort of get it out there is, is really important, conferences, whatever it may be. So um, for anybody who wants to maybe, you know, get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing, where, where could everybody find you?
1: Well, I'm here uh, on the screen uh, and also online, of course, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, ResearchGate, all over the place, so you can. I'm sure you can find me if you Google my name. But before I fi- we finish, I just wanted, if it's okay, to read the sure, five please. tips from the book, Why the World Needs Anthropologists from Anna Kirach that I mentioned before, because I think she summarizes really well what we talked about uh, today. So, five tips from Anna Kirach uh, for anthropologists, and in general, for life are, first, throw away your ego, and grab onto copious quantities of humility. Second, watch out for your expert blinders and hone in on collaboration skills. Three, be open to possibilities. Ask questions, be curious, and be willing to learn. Four, keep your hands in the dirt or in organic matter. It will ground you. Okay, it's an interesting one. And five, uh, again connected to what we talked today, co-create. Continuous involvement of the people you serve will give you the optimal chances for success. And I think it summarizes really well uh, what should be the future like uh, of anthropology and some kind of common goal that should uh, bring us uh, to this most ideal scenario. Uh, presented by James Peacock, former uh, president of the AAA, uh, who said um, that one of the scenarios is a kind of superhero scenario and that we will achieve it only in collaboration with other fields of science. We cannot do it alone. Yeah. Well said.
0: Don, thanks for everything. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me and uh, I hope uh, you will be able to come soon actually to physical edition of Why the World Needs Anthropologists. Thank
0: you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, Visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.